Hey, I'm Stan Stolniker with Hub Culture Tech Lodge here in Davos. It's uh, what we call Hub Date, Thursday, the 23rd of January. This is the four o'clock session on building a global digital middle class. Is it an imperative? Our co-chair for this session is Doug Monticello from Brevet Capital. Welcome. And we have a few other people to join us. Can we go around to the right here, say who you are and who you're with? And then we'll kind of dive into this conversation. Uh, I'm Özgür Altan. Uh, I'm an investment consultant for institutional investors out of New York for a company called Private Equity Venture Capital and Real Estate Investments. So, co-chairing Doug Montecello from Brevet Capital. I am the CEO and founder, uh, and we're glad to be here. Sandy Pedland, MIT, um, helped create the Media Lab, uh, run a number of different things around the world, including the Global Partnership for Sustainable Development Data. Gilles Fuchs, uh, Ministry of the Economy in Luxembourg. Um, I have some experience in creating ecosystems, and in Luxembourg I'm trying to shape uh, the data and digital ecosystem. I'm Sara Roversi, I'm the founder of the Future Food Institute. Uh, we work in education, community building and making exponential innovation happen, facilitating private and public uh, cooperation. We work with several UN agencies uh, in different parts of the world. We have uh, our hometown uh, headquarters in Italy, Bologna, San Francisco, Shanghai and Tokyo. Great. Welcome everyone. And again, I'm Stan Stoniker from Hub Culture. Uh, working on strategy for the community and our efforts to build the first virtual nation. Um, so, Doug, I'd like to kick off with you on sure. the subject. So, the, the, uh, we were talking a little bit earlier about what means this idea of a global digital middle class, and it came from a session at the Bermuda Innovation Sprint, which, Sandy, you've been in, with yes. us in Bermuda in the past, and our work there from a few years ago has sort of turned into this annual two-week sprint that happens. and. I was on stage with somebody who essentially was representing SoftBank, and he said to this group of people that if you weren't a unicorn, it doesn't matter. And I found that really like like anger inspiring. Um, <laughs> but I realized that the reason it made me so mad is that he's kind of right, given the current model, because compounding efficiencies create like exponential winners, but that's leaving behind a lot of people. And so then I started to think about what the alternatives to that were. And one of them is essentially roadblocks, which I think is what's happening in a lot of the conversation today, especially where we're looking at throwing up inefficiencies. Um, and that's not gonna necessarily get us to where we wanna be. And that left me with this idea that we need an algorithmically superior model for a global digital middle class that actually provides inclusion versus exclusion or elitism. So that was the kind of initial view I had on it. Doug, let's start with you and the view from Brevet. Sure, so thank you. The, this, the perspective that we take is that, uh, you're right, there's, there's obviously this the chasm that's being created by these efficiencies, but what I think we're not seeing yet is the second wave, which is um, the improvement of technology and algorithms to help pull up the, well, I'd say the, the bottom or more local businesses to be larger, more global. Um, and actually, you know, having Sandy here is great because I think there are some great examples of what what is helping this top companies efficiencies, but algorithms and more or newer technologies for identifying where there's need, identifying opportunities more efficiently, or enabling smaller companies to actually become much more effective. Um, it's a you know, bedrock of our beliefs of we could bring 
technologies, say from MIT and other universities, and convert them to being solutions for challenges like rural jobs or how do you create a middle class or what is a middle class company or what creates a middle class. And I think it's some of its identification. And you, know, you hear lots of talk about digital identification, but there's also a lacking of digital identification in terms of where are the targets? We talk about people, but how do you find the target companies? If you, the government wants to try to help something, how do you find those companies? Um, and actually we find uh, places like MIT and maybe you mentioned some of the folks that uh, you've worked with Sandy that we've, we've lived off of those algorithms and understanding that you can in a developing uh, country or situation find insights that could help you uh, basically achieve economies or efficiencies to catch up. You're not quite going to hit the, the, uh, the, the billion dollar company level, but to be much more sustainable or resilient because you can find your customers better, you can find your ecosystem better using today's technology. So I think, you know, um, the, the, the evolution is sort of going downstream a bit and is, is now reaching the ability where average companies and our governments can utilize these tools to now fill in that void in the middle. Um, I think it's going to take time. I think we've seen amazing results from our initial you know, forays into that space. Well, Sandy, your work at MIT is on social physics, right? Sure. And I think this is the topic um, that I would think your work would really, I think, well inform because certainly this is what one you think of the, about, right? So, so, yeah, social physics is about using data to understand the evolution of culture. Yeah. Right. So that and if you want sounds to, pretty right. So, so a couple of things just to point out. One is is that in the last um, twenty years, the majority of humanity has moved from poverty to middle class. Yeah. So that's pretty amazing. That's never happened before. Um, at the same time, there's been this sort of exponential growth in wealth and, and influence by a small uh, percentage of people. So if you look at the income distribution curve, there's this little thing at the end which is which is off the charts, and that focuses our attention. Uh, and it, that's because some of these new digital businesses are incredibly scalable, and they have a tendency towards monopoly. Mm -hmm. So they get this whole different scaling behavior. And so then the question is, you got this middle class, and you've got people who have sort of fallen off the, uh, the edge here because of all the churn. But a lot less than before. Much, much less than, than before. In fact, the, the percentage of humanity in poverty as is something like one eighth of what it was uh, uh, 30 years ago, which is okay, but, but it, not, it doesn't stay there, and of course it's still not good. And maybe we have to someday redefine poverty. Uh, well, that would be a good idea because it's a sort of old-fashioned, it means you, poverty today means sort of you're about to die, right? That's not, we, we could up the ante a little bit. The, the, the fundamental <laughs> of, of bringing along most of humanity though starts with things like digital identity. A large fraction of people don't have any identity. Uh, it's things like building systems that reach lots of people. Um, so one of the things I'm proud about is I have a spinoff from my time in India. Uh, this is not something I did, but I started the company. It uh, provides health services for 10% of all the, the child born in the world. Isn't that amazing? and gets them registered and into the system. It's mostly in India and East Africa. Uh, so suddenly they have a, a touch, whereas before the world didn't even know they existed. 
And so you begin to see things like that. Uh, similarly, a lot of the spread of some of the digital wallets and things like that are bringing people the ability to interact, to pay for things, to, to take advantage of these things. Uh, huge uh, chunks of humanity. It's not all working, right? Food is a great example where there's so much food waste, there's so much inequality. Uh, but I was just thinking about this. Uh, uh, I got my start doing satellite stuff. And the reason I was doing satellite stuff is there had been uh, a crop failure in India that had resulted in two million people starving to death before anybody knew, because there was no monitoring. And then there was a crop failure in Russia, and nobody knew, so they cornered the wheat market, which means people in Egypt and other places starved to death because nobody knew that you could have fixed that. And since we put satellites up to monitor things, there had been no uh, starvations like that because you had enough time to begin to prepare for it. Now, that doesn't mean it's cured, right? as, as I'm sure you'll tell us. But, but you know, um, I think that we're, we're reaching a point where we need to get the whole of humanity uh, uh, able to take advantage of the tools that are being built and to have a voice. So for instance, the thing that, that uh, we did for the Sustainable Development Goals, we had a, a committee that wrote a report uh, called A World That Counts. What that means is uh, every person should count. And that sounds sort of obvious, but until even today, most people aren't registered anywhere. Mm -hmm. The government doesn't know they exist. They can starve to death. Nobody knows. They die of disease. Nobody knows. That's what a world that counts means, is that people should be part of the world. And we should be engineering things for them. So I've talked a lot. Thank you. So. That's really interesting. Oz, do you have a view? Uh, well, I mean, uh, certainly agree with the, the definition of poverty that I think that's required because we past 30 40 years we've been talking about how much people we lifted out of poverty and it's one eighth of what it was 30 years ago I think you mentioned but uh, I think there is a very simple definition like two dollars per day kind of definition but that a lot of those people uh, live in these seven square meter cells in big cities, mostly in China and around there. No access to healthcare, not much education. So they, are, they don't count that much. Although in statistics they show as people who've been lifted out of poverty, so there's progress, so we can feel better. I think first these definitions and measurements should change and people realize, just like they're now realizing with the force of nature that, that we should do something about climate change now so that people can start thinking in those terms and uh, maybe take action. Because when there isn't, I think, public opinion behind, because uh, we keep telling people, world is doing good, we're doing good, there's progress, a lot of people are doing much better. People hear that, then there's no much pressure for, I think, well, poverty is relative, right? I mean, mm. we all probably feel poor in Davos. <laughs> Do you have a thought? Yeah, absolutely. It's pretty interesting, of course, because the topic is strictly related to agriculture. Mm. And the majority of the people, the poorest people in the world, lives out of farming, small orders, and so on. So basically, this is strictly connected, and we are absolutely interested on deep dive on that.
we started really analyzing food from different perspective and we started at Unga in September presenting a kind of new way to think about food starting from food diplomacy and identifying many different KPIs and interconnection everybody think, thinks about food as silos but it's absolutely super complex as a topic and what you're doing and all the smart contract and all the smart currency and all the smart things that are coming up for sure can be enablers, can be enablers and can solve the issue a lot. But I think that there's something missing that is the educational part, because of course there is this little part that <laughs> needs to be bridged because it's a big gap and we need to educate them then to use those technologies. We have been working in Ghana, we have been working in many different countries. We had Google with us, with a project in Ghana five years ago to empower farmers and cocoa farmers to change the system. But the solution that came up from them was not something working on those phones. The technology was a simple answering machine because those people doesn't need the super smart technology we wanted to provide them. You know, we've seen that with refugee work because we've been meeting with refugees we actually have four asylum seekers working at Hub this year here in Davos, which mm. I'm really proud of. But um, me and Edie, our executive editor, went to Germany a couple of years ago, and we met and we met with refugees, and we were talking to them about digital identity and about digital currency because they're unbanked and they're in these markets, and it was really amazing. Like they completely were able to like capture and and grab a Hub ID, a digital identity, with no yeah. problem. And what was really interesting was that they didn't even care too much about like the idea of a digital currency or a digital wallet. What they wanted was just a simple place to store a picture of their passport or their deed or some like record of importance to them from mm -hmm. where they were lost. And that was actually the thing that they wanted the most more than anything. So sometimes they just need like a JPEG yeah. Um, yeah. to feel but then what you're talking about goes much more in depth with their life because they're not bankable. So those people, at least in Italy where we are, we have thousands of people that can get a job, can get money, can right. so yeah. even if you mm -hmm. want to help they don't, them. They don't exist exactly. as uh, far as the government exactly. is concerned. We invested yeah. in migrants. That's a platform that is focused really on uh, migra migrations and uh, facilitating this process and actually wants to work on that field. So be more than glad to connect you with them because they're doing an amazing work on that yeah. and there's a lot to do. So, it's, yeah. so one thing that is interesting about being here is that uh, a lot of Switzerland is farmers. Like you go through these mountains, yeah. these are all, mm -hmm. all those little houses, those are storage things for grain from sometimes the 1500s. And, and what society has done here is they priced food very, very high. This is why all these restaurants are so expensive, yeah. in, part, in part, right? And, but it still makes sense to is live that on so the that land. You can be a farmer and to be a farmer of a small plot here. It's really interesting. It's That's one of the key places yeah. on earth. And one wonders if, as the world becomes more wealthy, because as I said, the, the majority of the world is now middle class, maybe we can rise the price of food finally to pay the poor people who are mostly farmers, right? So maybe there's a way to you yeah. know, change the economic system. But I don't know, right? I think the distribution is the pain point. Uh -huh. The distribution is the pain point of everything. You need to restructure the entire system. Mm -hmm. You know that this intermediation is changing everything. Right. And that there's a lot that needs to be done really to redesign the system. 
I have a question about that from an economic standpoint, Sandy, because if you if you could do that, like the idea is to get more income to the end of the system, right? To the end of the yeah. road, to the farmer plot. But if you if you were able to do that, I wonder if that would change the market incentives. Because like I think about it compared to the US, where agribusiness and gigantic, you know, farms have taken over really most of farming um, because there's an economic, you know, model around it that actually encourages consolidation. So you know, I wonder if you have to have really strong governance to be able to well, prevent that. So, you know, so, you know, with the market and the well, market and, and, and that's why it would work in Switzerland, but nowhere else it would. Yeah. But, but but one of the other thing, I mean, these are just ideas. Or forgive me for this is the idea out. of the conversation. So so, so um, people talk about CO two, people talk about the water shortage, which is probably just as urgent from a human life point of view. The soils are being deployed, yep. depleted because of bad farming practices, for instance, in the U.S., mm -hmm. and, but, but, but everywhere, everywhere, right? Everywhere. And really, so what it is, is that the ecosystem is out of balance. Yep. The soils need to be built up. They'll hold water better. I mean, if you go to India and you see systems for, for irrigation that are 1,500 years old that are better than the systems today, mm -hmm. right? So, so there's this sort of notion that perhaps what we can do is we can uh, uh, value things rather differently in order to make it the sort of balance in the ecosystem. And that will take care of a lot of uh, CO2, it'll take a lot of the soils, it'll mean that the, the trade of farmer is now more valuable because it's not just about the food, it's about the conservation and the maintenance and the sustainability. Yeah. And I would love to see something that's a more global solution rather than this, this, and this. It must, be, it must be like yeah. that. Yeah. Now, what I find interesting is I was actually in a panel earlier this week where a government, government representative of a not-nearby country said their challenge is that they only have a small farmers. And mm -hmm. it's interesting, uh, you know, the education that's needed to show that picture because I, I do agree with you. I do think that um, it, it's, it creates an economic strength <coughs> from the bottom up. And I think people need to come to realize that you have to have a, a bit of humanity and humility in what you're doing in, in an ecosystem, in an economic environment to say, listen, we want that farmer, we want that local farmer to be there and you're gonna pay a little more for some vegetables or whatever it is. It's interesting in New York City, we have all these farmer's markets where I'm not exactly sure I'm making foods any cheaper, but I do feel in, that's almost a requirement that I buy there because I want those farmers to be around. And it's interesting that right. there's almost this and, government... And that income goes years. directly to the farmer versus a long supply chain. Absolutely. Or the alternative is we don't do that. We create a mega farm, they go out of business, and they're now on some type of government support, and I'm paying for it anyway, right? Um, so maybe that's an ecosystem that just needs to be looked at. So I'd like to take that government official's comment as we have this problem of little farmers, and yes. imagine what would a world be like where he'd say, we have this great advantage Right. We have all these What would have to change to make that shift happen? Well, you know, it's really funny because, like, have you ever heard of like the common European agricultural policy? Yeah, yeah. So this is like if you go around the Netherlands and on like a train, you see loads and loads of small patch right. farm farms, right. and even in France and Germany, you see this. And part of the reason for that is that after World War II, you know, there was basically food shortages in Europe. And the, the, the governments at the time then created policies and implementation systems to prevent um, large farms from forming as a measure of food security. Because the view was that if you have lots and lots of small farmers, 
you would be less likely to have like a food disaster if that's it's like single point of failure in a right, distributed right, right. or a centralized system right. so you could look at like i see small farmers as being like essentially a form of decentralization yeah right which is really interesting when you compare that to like what the tech world constantly advocates and, and we still have this system actually we're still going with the pack so the, the, yeah. the European know, union is still supporting agriculture and small yeah. orders. Yeah, and the U.S. constantly complains about it because of the... So what's interesting about that comment is, isn't one of the biggest problems we have in the United States is the fact that we have a big nationalized power grid that everybody says, but what's the answer? Distributed power. It's the same thing as saying we've got large farms, and to be safe, we actually should have smaller farms and more distributed. I think the examples are there, and I think we see the effects. Um, It's interesting, some of the takeaways I've been hearing from this week is um, we're trying to find those intersections between government, society, and and companies. And it's interesting, so we hit on a couple of these points, which was you need tools, you need algorithms or maybe satellite data um, to look at things and say, here's really what's happening. You need education. It's the education to be able to show people, which something that doesn't seem so obvious. I, I was unsure when I first heard it about the mega farm versus the small farm. Because mm-hmm. I've seen the mega farms in, in the U.S. and, gee, that's great, we produce all this food, but actually we did create a tremendous instability economically. Right. right? So you got to be educated on that. And I also think it's it's the point where you get then the crossover between local, local companies, governments, society, uh, where you're going to intersect financial capital with incentives to drive it. And maybe you know, maybe the local farm to the table is actually the right concept. Mm-hmm. And how do, you, how do you drive that? But I think you need all three. You need tools, you need education, you need capital, and you need incentives to drive it. Because I, I don't think these things are initially obvious. It's no. almost counter to what you think you might be taught in school. Right? Bigger, more efficient, AI. Well, see, this, is, this actually gets to the very, very heart of this question, which is like, how do you build an algorithmically superior model? See, the, the issue would be that the big farm is more efficient, so therefore it's better. The small farms are less efficient, so therefore they're not better. Right. I think that's the that, old model. That equivalence between big and efficient is, is actually at the core of it. So, so one of the, we'll one of the things that's Oz. clear is that with things like AI and blockchain and stuff, you can build logistics chains and, and build uh, coordination among people with much reduced transaction costs. So what's the main reason for which we want big things? Well, it's because there's big, there's low internal transaction costs. Mm. So uh, what that means is that technology is making the case for big weaker. That's fascinating. You can so now that's have the algorithmic much, answer I've been looking for, that's, Sandy. See, that's exactly the algorithmic thing, is with transaction costs are really, coordination costs are really low. See, I knew you'd figure this out for me. I've been noodling <laughs> yeah. this for like three months, trying to figure out, <laughs> like, you well, know, let's work on this together, right? Yeah, <laughs> you're absolutely good. right. Okay, so that actually makes sense to me, and that actually points to, I think, a better world. Well, so for instance, we're working with uh, Southern Italy, Puglia, right? So Puglia has a strong culture of small family businesses, and and they don't want to lose that, but yet they have to become more productive. How do you do that? Well, what you have to do is you have to allow these small family businesses to coordinate very agilely, very cheaply, very quickly. And actually, now you can begin doing that a lot more than you could even 10 years ago. And so um, we're trying to uh, encourage them to invest in having more agile platform for the small businesses to work together 
so that they don't have to become megalith sort of businesses, so that the small family businesses can maintain. I want to come back to you in a second, because I think there's another angle from that that I want to challenge you on in a second. But Oz, you're an investor. Yep. Does this change your view about like where to put investments when you see a weakening case for big and a strengthening case for you know, small well, and decentralized? Small is beautiful. I always believe in that. And localization is going to save the world. And technology will hopefully help that. Uh, in terms of, I don't know, peer-to-peer uh, -peer blockchain transactions enabling a lot of uh, small business owners, if they still exist by then, not taken over by the big monopoly, big businesses. And uh, in agriculture, it's the same. I mean, uh, because the trend, the progress have always been uh, big is better. Uh, because we have a lot of people to feed and we, we need the yields. And this has been going on since the 60s, uh, from the type of grains to how you industrialize the whole production and all commoditization of agricultural products. We've come to a point now we are probably regretting some of this because, as mentioned, uh, some of the older solutions were much better in the long term. But with all the science we have, we thought we found Eureka moments, we found solutions that are much better. Over the years, we, we can see the harm that has done to our climate, our environment. But for some of them, I think we are too late to go back. And uh, I think small works, for example, look at Holland. I mean, they have like $100 billion of agricultural exports. And they have only about 2 million hectares of farmland. Look at Turkey, a country that I know well. They have about 12 more, uh, tw 24 million hectares of farmland, 12 times as Holland, but only exports like 15 billion in agriculture. So, mm. uh, I mean, Turkey has a very, I mean, a lot of the Turkish agriculture is still subsistence farming. Because of that, it's not industrialized or commercialized. Uh, but Holland, I think, uh, as you mentioned, has done it very well and use, utilizes technology and transaction costs. And uh, I mean, transportation is also very much important in a globalized world, because I remember in the 15th, 16th centuries, a lot of the Ottoman Empire's grain came from Poland. It was easier to ship it through there rather than getting it from Anatolia. and hasn't hmm. changed that much. So uh, I think a lot of uh, different variables are playing, but I think uh, we're going in the right direction with use of technology because I've invested in some farms, almond farms, etc. with little sensors. They can follow up 24-7 uh, what the weather is going to be, what they need to do, what kind of pesticides if they need to use. Of course, one step further is not using at all pesticides and finding a balanced solution within nature's its own balance, but that's I think, still too far away. And uh, technology will help, but I think it's all about timing. How long will it take? Are we going to be able to really prevent the small producers, people producing and consuming locally, and uh, really being able to compete with the big in farms, in small businesses, in everything? And the trend I'm seeing is big businesses really demolishing. I mean, just New York, every day another store disappears. But, but the, so I want to tell you, so is it possible what we're saying, and check me on this conjecture, is, is it we're saying we hear all these stories about AI robotics eliminating jobs, right, making the mega factories without any employees, 
But it also sounds like what I'm hearing is it could actually be the solution That's right. for creating things that we think of as being inefficient that actually now is a way to enable them. You know, is this actually maybe we're just in a transition of moving out of factories and moving into using well, those same skills? Well, I think that, that there's a sense in which that's true. Yeah. Um, one of the things that you talk about, the stores disappearing, one of the things is that we measure things by money only. And, and so a lot of these things are efficient from a monetary point of view, but inefficient from other points of view. So for instance, in, in economic speak, that is they have externalities that are not being incorporated into the price. Yeah. So for instance, resilience, right? So you talked about Holland and starving to death. Well, that's an externality, doesn't come up very often, but you know, it's like a, a price of insurance, right? You have that extra price you have to put on the food which, which argues for smaller things because as they get bigger, they're gonna to have to pay more resilience insurance, right. right? Water, well, you could like build a big water thing or you could build up the soil. Does your choice, you spend the money there or you spend the money on the, on the, on the big dam or you spend it on, on the soil. Both of them give you clean water, right? But one of them also gives you better crops and more resilience. So, so there's, yeah. there's, there's a possibility of using more um, general accounting methods to do this. Of course, this all has to be stuff that in our current system gets monetized in some way. Right. So, so the government has to, or somebody has to say, uh, yes, that's less money, but it's more risk. Or yes, that's less money, but now you've moved the, the cost to the uh, water filtration camp. Uh, thing. Right. You, know, you can't do that. Yeah, what's interesting right. is we're insuring it as it is, right? Because mm -hmm. there's the there's all the crop oh, insurance yeah. programs and flood insurance programs. You know, I come from a banking background as a M&A person, and I mean, it sounds like the FDIC model for banks, right? Which is if you want a safer place, you have to pay for the insurance on it. Right. And so, it, I can see if they actually have this solution, the insurance would be less on the more local, smaller business. Right, and, and larger on and larger the monoculture type thing. And it's yeah. almost, it could almost be a zero-sum game, right? Because um, they won't be paying on farm insurance right. if there's a drought or a flood, because they'll have that distributed more, less risky setup of all these local farms. Right. Yeah. So it's almost, it's not even like you're changing the ecosystem, you're redistributing those. But you're those incorporating these premiums. risks back, back into, into the, the assessment, that's right. And and in this environment where the coordination costs and the, the cost of assessing the risk yeah. is dropping dramatically. Can I cycle right. us over to another area of this conversation? Okay, but I have to leave in like two minutes. Okay, so um, so one of, the, one of the words in our kind of debate thesis is the word digital. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, we've kind of been talking about the physical side of everything to, with some some emphasis on digital, but in the virtual world that's emerging, um, there are haves and have-nots. 50% of the planet is not connected, 50% is. And you can argue that going forward, like potentially connectivity and even energy is a basic human right. Um, and it's going to be very difficult to excel if you're not connected. So I'm just curious what your guys' thoughts are on the digital side of the global digital middle class and how we try to ensure that. I mean, you know, um, I tend not to worry about that because, uh, you know, I remember 20 years ago when people said, ah, the digital divide, half of humanity has even never made a phone call. <laughs> and now we're at a point where there are more 
digital phones than there are people. Mm -hmm. And what is it, 80% of people have a smartphone, which means they can trade information. Mm -hmm. And uh, costs for being connected are dropping dramatically. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not true everywhere. It's not true all the time. There's more to be done. But that's the fastest transition of technology humanity has ever seen. Mm -hmm. yeah. And to almost everyone. And, and, mm -hmm. and, and to something that we would have patted ourselves on the back you know, in any previous generation. And so, you know, what will clearly happen is these smartphones will get cheaper, connectivity is going to be commodified, all the telcos are going around, we're going broke, because they're becoming commodified. Mm -hmm. And um, so what we need, though, is we need ways that uh, even the, the smallholder can make money using these devices, that they yeah. can actually have a way of really participating, they have an identity, they're counted, and so forth. And I apologize, I have to Thank you, Sandy. Thank you so much for your... Up or something like thank you for being pleasure. part of this. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. It's good to see you. Good to So I think that goes... Now that Sandy's going, I'm going to raise my question about his comment on platforms. Because he did say, like, we have this distribution, but platforms often are the drivers of these. And still we're in a model where people own the platforms or a few people own the platforms. Right. So like, I, and I think of Uber, right? So you have Uber or Airbnb where you have a lot of people who are now earning additional income because of the gig economy or distribution, very middle class, but you also have then this kind of stratospheric. I guess maybe one of the questions is, is it okay to have that kind of stratospheric return for the platform owner when you're generating that much economic value for the rest of society at the middle level. Is that suddenly okay or is is it are there relative boundaries to which we should be adhering? It's a big question. So the fact is we're gonna see steel entrepreneurs coming and growing with new business models. I wanna see them in the future. So I think that is healthy anyway for the world that we, we're gonna have new business models like the ones coming up with the sharing economy. Then needs to be balanced because probably the effect is not only on the distribution on that side, but maybe also on how cities are reshaping. Rome, for example, you have no families living in the city center. And uh, so you have no sh other shops. You have uh, a city that now is uh, all like a, a big distributed hotel. So the fact is not only on the economic perspective, but also on the cultural perspective, on the social perspective. And sometimes we don't think about those related causes that anyway are impacting on the society. So I think it's interesting, the question, but is even larger than what we think probably the effect. It's societal. And then you look at cultural norms. I mean, look at how Gen Z is living compared to how OK Boomer. Yeah. Exactly. I think generational change is coming and they are probably going to better utilize digital connectivity and they are going to be the digital middle class of the next two, three decades, both millennials and Gen Z, uh, because they are more native, although I complain a lot of the times about my girls uh, trying to do everything on their screens. Uh, from their homeworks to conversations, relationships to entertainment, everything's in on a screen. And uh, that's different to, I mean, not only the boomers, but also Gen X, which uh, I am from, uh, it hasn't been like that. So maybe we should just allow the possibility that generational change will bring some solutions 
to this digital connectivity and utilizing a digital life for a better life. Um, Doug, I'm curious about where are you guys investing? Like, if you look at this as a lens, how do you see this impacting how you guys invest or where, what you invest in? So we're actually investing very much along the movement of technology and innovation. Um, and the way we're doing it is by partnering with governments who are trying to solve a particular problem that they see. So uh, what's interesting is to hear uh, the perspective of Sandy of um, you know, how do you use this technology? We're implementing AI and other methods and algorithms <clears throat> to make our investing more effective, right? So it's interesting people say, well, you know, you really, we're making a big impact. And we said, no, what we're actually doing is being very um, intentional about the technology we use to have a very good outcome because we wanted to work. We are a debt fund, um, which leads to sustainable. And if we are um, very uh, careful and responsible about our decisions, you wind up in a situation where we're investing in places where we are bringing what looks like technology and money um, and tools and education to solving problems that you see that governments are trying to solve. So that might be, how do you solve a rural job problem? And what's interesting, you know, as I think through this discussion, uh, we're solving it by bringing technology in the sense of what is missing. It's easy to look at, you know, unemployed people in an area, but why? Uh, what creates the ecosystem to do that? So we could bring money to just hire people, but it's likely that won't last. Um, so we look at it and say, how do you solve the bigger problem? And we do use all these different methods. I mean, we we associate ourselves with places like MIT and the phenomenal work that they do at, uh, at the Media Lab because they're trying to figure out that social physics. Mm -hmm. Because what we found is we're debt. And the funniest thing about debt is somewhere it's an alternate definition to the word sustainable. Right? So we're we're being told all the time that, gosh, your, your, your activities work. Our activities work because we're writing loan, we need money back. It's a rigor of, of doing that, but it's the fact that we do it in an environment where- Well, especially compared to venture. And, and this, this kind of goes back to the SoftBank exactly. issue. So for a few <clears throat> years, SoftBank has arguably distorted the market. Um, and then you kind of see those chickens coming home to roost now. Um, and you would argue that if a company was subjected to the rigors of like debt metrics, you know, you might have seen maybe less demolition of capital? So, so I'm a big, so I, I do have a, a math background, right? And I look at it, everything, everything, uh, everything sort of uh, conforms over time or goes to sort of a more equilibrium state. I do think we're living in a time period, it could be 10 plus years of it, but where you're seeing the super efficiencies and things. Um, and I was listening to uh, a CEO of a major company just yesterday, and he said, just because we're the largest in the world in our industry, doesn't mean that we have to every day reinvent, be more innovative, <laughs> be more uh, effective for our communities to just be alive tomorrow, right? So even the biggest companies, <coughs> you look at the companies over a hundred years and realize that <clears throat> they're, they're not perpetual. And so, it is, it's amazing to think, you know, could these large um, digital companies go away at some point? Or could new ones arrive? I mean, we're working or, with TikTok here and they have exactly. close to a billion combined users in two years. And, and I have a lot of faith in humanity, as you were saying, even in the food world, right? Yeah. Tremendous, tremendous faith in humanity that um, 
everything is new and amazing and efficient when it's new and it's amazing and it is efficient relative to what you were doing but it's fascinating to think that main street or that local farm may turn out to be as efficient as that mega farm or that large online store yeah i right? mean that sounds like a pathway to that idea of a global digital middle class it, it would be if i was thinking of what that would do for the problems that we try to face with governments which is rural rural jobs yeah. you drive down the main street of a town and we hear governments say we'll give you those buildings it's on the left side of main street if you actually bring the jobs could you call that nodal efficiency like if i think of things in the form of a network and you have yeah. like the centralized urban core and then you have these like distributed like say almost like a neural network these rural areas and these outside areas so this is about essentially m moving efficiency to the edge well it, it, it is and, and what's interesting we talked about uh, food security and you know i think everybody knows that the the most stable form of electricity is distributed power generation yeah right so you think about all this and the the barrier has been it's much more efficient to run that big plant than the small one. But now we can put solar panels on roofs and we can put all kinds of um, alternative wind and other in rural areas and small areas and locally distribute. One of the biggest problems of power is you lose so much of it transmitting it. <clears throat> so it's very clear that maybe we're actually, as I said, you, you, you evolve, right? You get some efficiencies, you take some steps, you, you, you look back and go, wow, it's amazing. And then the next day you look forward and say, I can make it better, or there's a better way to do it. And so I want to ask you, you said that you work in PR, or sorry, in HR. Um, so how does this apply to people? Well, this is a big question because we are working a lot on people development and mainly with FAO, so the Food and Agriculture Organization that see the needs of leveling up the knowledge of the people in the mm. ground on the farmers and the poorest areas on the world. So this is exactly what we are doing. And we are trying to doing that involving the major food industries because this is the, the real thing. We need to start to connect what's, what's actually is happening at the UN level and on, the, on, on our level, on the business level. They never talked before. So now it's the time in which we really have to bring the big one that are producing the biggest commodity in the world to the farmers and work together. Because of course the strategy in the past has been let's keep them ignorant because if they don't know, mm. we can manage them. And it's been like that. Now we need to empower them because if there's but they're going to know anyway because of technology. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So now it's very important to train them and to level up their knowledge. We all are going to benefit from that. We all are going to benefit from that. But if you see what Paul Pullman has been doing in the last years uh, before leaving Unilever, I think is pretty a good example because they started redesigning the system going back to the farm and saying hey we need to split the power and the ownership of this chain and we need to talk with them we need to empower them and maybe we're gonna get a little bit less but better and so this is actually something that is happening is happening not only Unilever Unilever has been this first mover but not only him yeah, so we're going to have to wrap up in a couple minutes here. So can I just get a final word from each of you back on the subject? I, I know, Oz, you need to go in a second. So we'll give the first word to you, um, then we'll come back to you, yeah, and then we'll go to, sure. to Doug. 
Well, I mean, I'm hopeful that uh, technology, uh, if we can really come over the current hurdles, that like the monopolistic approach, scaling, uh, and uh, as Sandy was mentioning, measuring everything with money. If I don't know, will it come from the governments? Will it come from uh, the people? Uh, or I mean, the new generations are organizing themselves pretty well in terms of putting pressure on changing things uh, in, on climate and uh, on gun control everywhere. Uh, I don't know, but uh, I think we're in a transition and we're going to see uh, if uh, we will have a more kind of equal, uh, with the help of digital and technology, uh, equal societies living in a better uh, world uh, in the next two, three years, but I think the next two, three years matter a lot in terms of what needs to be done. The two, two, if my Davos experiences, I think two to three years go by very, very quickly, but it, it's, it, it seems like a short period of time, but it's also amazing how much can change in two to three years. Like, I mean, just look at look last back. year, in one year, all the businesses out here now talking about how much they're doing in terms of sustainability. So, well, you know, somebody said to me today, thought leadership is dead. Which I thought was amazing. And they're like, it does, thought leadership doesn't matter anymore. It's only about action. And I thought to myself, that's the first time I've heard that, that the idea that thinking and talking about things is no longer good enough. I feel like Davos has really turned a corner this year. There's something very different going on. I think it, maybe it's just a new decade and everybody's ready for some fresh mm -hmm. ideas. That's Super cool. I'm going to use that for my Sunday message to all my advisors. <laughs> it's super interesting. It's true. It's true. And what we are seeing, starting from the squares of Fridays for the Future, we need to turn this energy and transform those activists in change makers, in really people that are problem solver. We cannot just listen to them, but if they want to help, they need to help and roll up their sleeve and we need to make it happen. And this is happening. I see that also at the B20. I'm part of some different task force at the B20. For the first time this year, they were talking much more in depth uh, on tangible action. Every year I'm there since five years, we are writing policy recommendation that probably nobody reads. This year, we had the injection meeting last year, last week in Riyadh. We said, okay, let's yeah, write down not policy April. recommendation, let's write down what we're going to do. So really something that is tangible. And this is needed. It's true that we don't have time. Let's say five years ago was cool. We were hearing those messages. Now we are seeing the effect every single day. So this is happening. And I'm very positive because what I've seen here this week has been hmm. really a big commitment from big people that can really make a big impact. If they change, they can affect millions of people's lives. So I, I'm positive, I'm positive. Yeah, I, I would agree. I've been tremendously encouraged this year to be engaged in conversations where they're, they're talking about um, sustainability, resilience, and talking about changing decision-making processes, research. Um, we were just at a, one of the events where uh, several of the deans of business schools have said we need to relook at ourselves and change our curriculum to basically empower um, the students coming out of it to, to really be able to be actionable. Right? Um, and last year was interesting, it was about purpose, right? it was the key word. This year it's about actions, it's about stakeholders, it can help it's moved in the direction of doing something about it. Right? And you hear words like humility, humanity. We've always believed in you have to be responsible. If you have a duty when you're managing money 
or you're impacting many many different aspects of society, you have to be responsible. And we've always sort of focused on that, but we now hear it being focused on in a way where they're creating action plans and they're considering the various stakeholders to make decisions and changing almost like the, the rules of order of how they do it. So. Yeah. It's encouraging. It's, been, it's, it's yeah. been exciting. I think just to wrap up, I would say I agree. And uh, I feel like uh, there is a signal from the forum, which we, was the Davos Manifesto, and it's been sort of received by the community of Davos and being reflected back. Um, seeing a lot of like coordinated activity this year, like even before people talking about, like, let's get organized as a group. And so for me, it comes down to we're all kind of devolving into tribes. And we're now realizing that the tribes can't get it done on their own because mm -hmm. they're actually gears and the tribes are each gears and if the tribes aren't synced then the machine can't work and that's what's actually happened the machine's broken right and so we're trying to now i think feel like we got to sync the gears and as we start to sync the gears the machine can actually start to work in a new way and that's sort of what i'm looking for that's why you guys are here part of this conversation syncing the gears so thank you so much for your participation and you can catch this on hublive.tv, Hub Radio, um, various university archives, and JEDI, the Joint European Disruptive Initiative, which is kind of like European DARPA. <laughs> so may the, um, may the hub be with you. <laughs> Great. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks, everybody.